I'm Dr. Regina Kep. I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist, and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the Psychology of Aging podcast to dispel myths about aging, destigmatize mental health for older adults, and improve access to mental health care. Whether you're an older adult, a family member caring for an older adult, or a professional working with older adults, you're in the right place. And one more thing. If you're a licensed mental health provider like a social worker, psychologist, counselor, therapist, or an aging life care expert or certified care manager looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. All right, let's jump into today's episode. Today, Dr. Peter Lichtenberg is on the podcast sharing about how to prevent financial exploitation and abuse. In today's interview, Dr. Lichtenberg shares examples of elder financial exploitation. So he shares his own stories and experiences of working with older adults and their families who have been financially exploited. And this is an effort to raise awareness about what financial abuse looks like so we know how to help and prevent it. He'll also share what increases the risk for financial vulnerability lots of resources to help older adults, caregivers, and professionals to prevent elder financial exploitation and to recover from identity theft. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Peter Lichtenberg. Dr. Peter Lichtenberg is the director of the Institute of Gerontology in the Merrill Palmer Skillman Institute and a distinguished professor of psychology at Wayne State in Detroit, Michigan. Dr. Lichtenberg was one of the first board-certified clinical geropsychologists in the nation. He devotes his clinical and research efforts to better understand the intersection between cognitive impairment, financial capacity, and financial exploitation. Across the past decade, he has created several tools to help assess financial vulnerability and financial decision-making and partnered with the state of Michigan to have his tools implemented by Adult Protective Services. Dr. Lichtenberg is the recipient of several major professional awards, and he has authored seven books and over 190 scientific articles in geropsychology. His new website, olderadultnestegg.com, helps assess financial decision-making and determine financial vulnerabilities for older adults. It provides training, tools, and resources for professionals, caregivers, and older adults themselves. I cannot think of a better person to help us prevent elder financial abuse and exploitation. In this interview, we talk about, or Dr. Lichtenberg talks about the family as a system and caregiving occurring in the context of a system and relationships. And what's so wonderful about his resource, the olderadultnestegg.com, is that he really acknowledges and offers resources for each person in that system, the older adult, the family, and even the professionals who are working with the older adult in the family. I'm delighted to be interviewing Dr. Lichtenberg, and I hope that you will check out the show notes page for all of the resources. All right, let's jump into the interview. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today on the Psychology of Aging podcast. I am delighted that you're here to enlighten us about a really tough topic which is about financial exploitation and vulnerability and how to help families navigate and professionals navigate these challenging waters. So thank you for being here. 
Thank you so much for having me, Regina, and thank you for covering this important topic. Yeah, your resource, um, and which we'll talk about today in this interview, was recently um, mentioned in a in a AARP article about a must-have resource for protecting your yourself against financial exploitation. And so congratulations. I'm so Thank delighted. You. We but, were delighted to, to get the call from them and ask if it was okay to, to post us. And uh, yes, indeed, our, our services and our resources, of course, are national and international. International too. Yeah. Whoa, that's impressive. Well, can you share a little bit of how did you get interested in working with older adults and around finances? What, what's the backstory of that? Sure. So I've had a 35-year career in geropsychology and geriatric neuropsychology, done a lot of work in dementia and dementia assessments, and, and a lot of work even earlier in my career in, and throughout in capacity assessments. So let me just describe one case I got involved with with the legal system about an 87-year-old woman who had passed away. She had been noted to have uh, early Alzheimer's disease. She lived alone with her dog in a very cohesive neighborhood, a lot of dear friends and so forth. One of her former neighbors who had moved away swooped back in, made a deal with this woman. Hey, I'll take care of you and if you leave me your house, I'll also take care of your dog after you die. Well, A, she never took care of the woman. B, she had the dog put to sleep after the woman died. And C, she ended up being the sole recipient of the woman's, in her will, and her children, this former neighbor's children, ended up living in the house that the older woman had. It was a horrible case. And that's just one of many that I've been involved in. And, you know, when you do capacity assessments, all of a sudden you realize with the dark side of this is financial exploitation. If you were to break this case down then, so a neighbor moves away, comes back, says, I'll care for you. Where might you have considered or recommended intervening so that... Yeah, so this is really a tough case because it, the woman had early dementia, so she can come across as having it together. The neighbors kind of that were close to her tried to talk to her, and uh, she didn't believe them. And what happened, this is kind of a classic undue influence case, is that uh, the evil neighbor, former neighbor, really poisoned the relationships that the older woman had with others in the neighborhood and really got that paranoia stoked. This would be a very difficult case to intervene in. Um, I can see the APS worker coming out, Adult Protective Service, and investigating if somebody made a complaint and finding the woman to say, oh, well, you know, my my former neighbor, you know, we were close and now she's taking care of me and, and so forth. And sometimes it's really not until things unfold quite a bit that you really see how pernicious and evil this really is. Yeah, the benefit of hindsight. I was... Wanting to back up for a second, can you define undue influence? Sure, sure. It's essentially the overthrow of free will. So uh, I'm going to substitute your will for mine. And how do I do that? Well, I've really got to develop a confidential relationship with you. And in most cases, you really have to have some kind of susceptibility 
I mean, it, you know, extreme cases, if you're kidnapped or something, you can have that. But, but in most cases with dementia, that's the susceptibility, this confidential relationship. And then I start to isolate you, poison other relationships. You become completely dependent on me, this power differential. And then the next thing you know, I'm pulling the strings. I'm getting the attorney. I'm calling the attorney, yeah. bring them to you. Oh, yeah, we want to change this uh, deed to the house and change the will. And that's really classic undue influence. Uh-huh. And it's it's one extreme form of financial exploitation. Um, there are many others. Yeah, so that is very extreme. And then I was thinking, oh, what a what a painful thing for the neighbors who tried to intervene but had no legal authority to do anything about it. And then you said even if APS, which is Adult Protective Services, got involved, it, they might be able to fool them. The the pr- the bad actor might be able to fool them. One other case, I mean, came from the same kind of uh, probate work. Uh, and this is more along the lines of what people think of when they think of financial exploitation. This uh, divorced older gentleman was retired, high, high need for status, big ego, uh, get, was getting kind of isolated and uh, fell into this romance inheritance scam. So it was a, a classic romance scam, except with a really interesting twist the inheritance was, well, I am a woman and I want to marry you, not only because I love you in the romance scam, but also because I can't inherit my $15 million in my culture unless I'm a married woman. And um, he actually ended up sending $800,000 across two months um, to, uh, to a nefarious individual that didn't really exist. I mean, so he sent it off. And, um, you know, I got involved in this case and eventually it became a guardianship case. He uh, still believed that he was going to have a payoff with this, even though the FBI had sat down with him and the bank president. This is one of those cases where it really, you know, they had done such a good job of influencing him and and tapping into that need for status and visibility and being kind of an important person that they totally overtook him. I want to just think about the desire to for love and the longing for that intimate connection and how, how easily exploited that piece of that relationship was. Exactly. That's exactly. Yes. And, And this happens a lot, you know, more even in person for lesser sums, but this case, of course, was so um, somewhat unique in how much money left, how quickly. Yeah, yeah. So now I know that you all have done at your at Wayne State and the department that you work in have done research on. Um, you talked about that first case, early memory loss and financial decision making, and the risk for a financial exploitation. Can you talk a bit about the research and the and findings sure. there? Sure. So you know, I did one of the first national studies on fraud. It just so happened that the question I wanted in there got put into this. Uh, part of the sub-study of the Health and Retirement Survey. And so I knew about the data. And so we did this study. We found out that psychological vulnerability was a big predictor of, of fraud. And I started to think, you know, how would you, and, and, in, and in these cases too, that I assess people in real time, 
how do, how would you assess their financial decision making? Because that's really what it comes down to. Do they have those decisional abilities? Is that intact? To make an informed decision, we're all allowed to make bad decisions, but it has to be informed. And there were no instruments out there. So we decided we were going to try with help from numerous colleagues uh, to create new financial decision-making measure, one that was person-centered and one that really looked not only at kind of the informed decision-making factors of uh, choice and understanding appreciation, but also the contextual factors of financial strain or confidence, psychological vulnerability, and uh, susceptibility factors. As we, as we did that, we started to then, um, we, had, we created a long scale, a shorter scale for all kinds of social service professionals, and an informant scale for families. And we started to say, well, does this really show any intersection with financial exploitation? And sure enough, especially in cases where there's early memory loss, uh, the intersection between faulty decision-making and exploitation was clear. We published quite a bit on this. Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy. But I got something for you. In my free 10-minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss, you'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y. And especially, and then fill us in on that early memory loss piece, then that's what creates that vulnerable, that psychological vulnerability. Is that what you're saying? No, you know, it, it actually can be separate from that. And the health and retirement study, interestingly enough, uh, that's a pretty healthy cognitive sample. And so uh, without cognitive deficits, uh, the psychological vulnerability really held out. And that's why we knew context was so important, can overwhelm sometimes whether uh, somebody, even even if their intellectual abilities are intact and, and not, it, that context can really determine what they do. But uh, I think we should recognize, and I think in, in uh, financial exploitation, we probably need to come up with a better taxonomy. We talk about, have people been defrauded or not? Have they been exploited or not? But I think we need, you know, sort of simple exploitation or I don't even know what the word is. It's like a falling, you know, you have falls and you have injurious falls. I think we need that kind of taxonomy and financial exploitation because people with memory loss are much more likely to have repeated episodes of mm -hmm. being exploited. And I think that's really where, where they become quite vulnerable. And a lot of times, uh, memory or executive functioning deficits like the gentleman with the romance inheritance scams. He had some clear executive functioning deficits, probably vascular dementia early on. And um, 
that, you know, just that concreteness, even though he seemed in so many other ways able to, you know, talk about why he was doing this and live this, that concreteness didn't allow him to really assess the risks, the consequent potential consequences and so forth. Mm-hmm. I was remembering a case I had where I was working with an individual who was in his nineties, cognitively intact, no dementia process happening, but um, had medical vulnerabilities and hearing had cochlear double cochlear implants and, um, and was exploited by a home health aide actually, who, um, revealed some of her own vulnerable, like financial concerns in her life. And, you know, would ask him for support and his role in the family was as a provider and he was more and more alone. And, and I, and I, part of it is it felt so good to give, you know, and to be able to contribute for him. It felt so good to be able to contribute to somebody who was in need. And I think if, if she had asked and not exploited him, he might've even done it. And, and it it turned out that it was just exploited because she was lying about all these, there was a house fire and she lost everything. I mean, she, she was lying about all these traumatic events in her life that were not true. And, and I think it really appealed to his need to continue to right. offer something to the world and to people. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that. I mean, fraudsters are, are looking at, you know, help somebody else make a difference. That behavioral confirmation, what you do is important to somebody else. Yeah. Uh, help your family by getting rich, the lottery scams, the sweepstakes scams, <laughs> or fear. You know, IRS is coming to get you or your grandson is arrested in Acapulco or, or what have you. Yeah. But also those mechanisms of exploitation that we've started to touch on. You just touched on one abuse of trust. That's so much at the heart of so much of this exploitation. And we talked about coercion or undue influence. The third one is really financial entitlement. And this is really sad because, you know, let's say I'm, well, I am a middle-aged adult and I was, I was my dad's caregiver, but let's say I, all of a sudden I say, well, you know, I have to take dad to the doctor um, and he should really drive around in a nice car. Of course, you know, 99% of the time I'll drive around and so I'm going to buy myself a, a BMW with my dad's money. And I start to feel entitled to that. I don't think of that as theft or misuse of funds. And that's a real problem because, uh, what we have noticed is that money is quite the taboo topic among generations. Older people don't talk with their younger family members about their finances, where it's kept, how they protect it, and so forth. What are the barriers to that? What keeps people from talking about it? Uh, one thing is people fear that if they uh, let their kids know they have money, that, that they'll feel more entitled to it. Another thing is it's, it's an interesting societal kind of thing in terms of uh, you know generations don't speak about money and there's thick boundaries about that and it has to do with autonomy just as you were saying about this older individual the provider you know once I you know reveal these things I'm not that autonomous uh, person and yet I think we all have to have a plan as we get older because we don't, never know what's going to happen in terms of how do we protect our finances right right so is your recommendation then that families talk about it or what do you think? Yeah, my recommendation. Yeah, it's a good question. 
my recommendation is you know, it's going to be different for different uh, individuals, but is that they are talking with somebody about it. So if it's yeah. their financial professional, they're talking to them, but they're making a plan that's going to include somebody who is not strictly professional, somebody else who might be the one that someone turns to uh, in case of, uh, yeah, I, I come into my a planner's office or accountant's office, he notices, boy, Peter's not remembering things like he used to. Who am I going to contact? Right. That kind of a plan. And also, um, what kinds of protections? You know, banks offer a lot of good protections now. You can't wire more than X amount, or there's warning flags that go up on certain kinds of withdrawals. You know, so how do you, how are you going to deal with that too? Right, right. I like this idea that there's not a one-size-fits-all recommendation. It's different for every family, every relationship. The history of relationships is important too. Have there been betrayals and other sorts of mistrust in the past or um, mismanagement of money in the past, even if there are no betrayals? So that might all influence what how people decide to talk about money or not. And then but not to keep silent, to find a trusted individual that can help you make some of these planning decisions. Is that yeah, right? Absolutely correct. Absolutely. And, and um, because, because without it, you know, a lot of times some of these awful cases that I see, you know, it's like the prodigal son, the, the person who has a, in the past misused funds and was estranged from now mom and dad are getting more frail. And in they swoop. And all of a sudden, you know, I don't remember all those things that they did. And, but at their heart, they're manipulating and trying to gain control. So you got to have some plans in place to make sure that your wishes are going to be, to be really upheld. What Dr. Lichtenberg is, is providing us with in this interview today is, really excellent examples of how financial exploitation plays out. And just to deepen the conversation with another family story, I wanted to share an excerpt from an interview I did last year with Kathy Schottenstein Paddup, who's the granddaughter of Beverly Schottenstein, who you might remember um, a couple of years ago was in the news as having uh, sued her grandsons and JP Morgan and and won and was awarded $19 million um, in that lawsuit. So I interview Kathy Schottenstein Paddup, um, who will share a bit about the experience of her grandmother, Beverly Schottenstein, being financially exploited at um, and at 93, who decided to file charges for financial exploitation against her two grandsons who were managing her wealth with J.P. Morgan. Um, in February of 2021, she was found, um, the courts ruled in her favor on all accounts, and she was awarded, as I mentioned, $19 million. Uh, the ruling determined that her grandsons were indeed guilty of financial exploitation. And and I just wanted to sort of give another example, especially because in this interview, Peter talks about how families often don't talk about money and protecting money. And that was certainly true for the Schottenstein family. And so I, I want to just share another family story with you. So here's an excerpt from my interview with Kathy Schottenstein Paddup. So while it was 
sort of the background of my childhood, I was, you know, in many ways blissfully unaware of where the money originated from and moreover, how much money there was. And I say this sometimes during interviews, the truth is we were a family that never talked about money. So we, and my grandmother actually always was fairly frugal. Um, you know, she didn't have a lot of expensive clothes and she, she always was in the house that she was in with her husband before he died and where she raised her kids in Columbus, Ohio. My dad attended public school, that sort of thing. I, I went to public school. So while there was this, this backdrop of the Schottenstein name in Columbus, Ohio, because some of the stores are named after the last name and it's a known name in Columbus and they tend to be very philanthropic and are generous with donations and therefore their names often attached to those donations. It was really not something we ever talked about and we didn't know. And then um, my cousin, Evan, who is the same age as me, I'm 39 years old. He graduated uh, college and we, we graduated the same year. We both graduated in 2004. And he wanted to go into uh, financial advising in the brokerage industry. And he asked my grandmother if he could control her estate. And at the time, her estate was being controlled by outside advisors. And again, because we really didn't talk much about money I, for one, didn't have any concept of how much money he was really asking to be in charge of or what the ramifications of that could be. Um, and I was also young and I was just out of college and, you know, going, getting married soon and, and that sort of thing. So I had my own world going on. And so ultimately in 2006, my cousin Evan did get control of my grandmother's estate and started being her financial advisor. And it's, it's kind of crazy to think about that. That started in 2006. And ultimately, he switched firms a number of times. And in, I think you mentioned 2014, was it? Um, that's when, I, I believe, that's when he started at J.P. Morgan. So he started at a few different firms. He was at Morgan Stanley before he was at J.P. Morgan. And then I believe he was at Citigroup before that. So he was at a number of big banks. But he was at J.P. Morgan for five years and that was up until my cousin and I were visiting my grandmother, which was the holidays, Christmas time of 20, December 2018, Christmas time 2018, right before the new year of 2019. And things started getting concerning because my grandmother um, has an aide named Don Henry. And she had alerted me a few months before I came to visit my grandmother that that she thought there was some suspicious activity and she actually suspected some elder abuse. And I think it's important to know my cousin Evan's family lives one floor below my grandmother in Florida. So they had proximity to my grandmother and just incredible access. They literally had a key to her back door and could come in anytime they wanted. And for the rest of the family who was dispersed throughout the United States. My dad's still in Columbus. I'm in New Jersey. It was actually nice knowing that someone was there close by. That's a family member that can help take care of her. But what I've come to learn writing my book and, and since my grandmother's trial and, and case is that can be a warning sign. It's something to be careful of when you're talking about elder abuse, because 
oftentimes elder abuse is committed by those within, within the family itself. And I think it's why that, that, that fact is, is because they have access, they're close by and who's really monitoring close family members. So while it can be lovely to be close to your aging parent, it is important that other family members are at least aware of what's going on and not just assuming everything's okay. Um, So what happened was they had a a lot of access, access to her mailbox, access to her phone, you know, constantly there in the same building physically. And Don Henry had been hired a few years before when my grandmother fell and broke her hip at a beauty salon. And that was back in 2016 when Don Henry was hired. And Don started becoming suspicious, she'll say very early on, um, because they would often come up, Evan and his father, Bobby, would come up one flight of stairs and be shredding my grandmother's documents and statements. And so Don, that was the first alarm bell that rang for Don because she thought, why are they going through her statements. I mean, my grandmother wasn't asking them to shred her statements. So why are they doing this? And they were doing it in a back room and that Don felt suspicious. Then around the time I came to visit, Don told me, do you know, we're not getting statements. Like nothing's coming in the mail for us. So again, I thought that was strange, but to be honest, I really didn't want to get involved. I didn't want to start creating tension within the family and and start asking these difficult questions, which now I've learned you do need to to not be afraid to ask. Um, But I didn't really say, I didn't say anything at the time. And she told me this, the statements had stopped coming. Then we're all congregated at my grandmother's condo in Bell Harbor, Florida. And this is Christmas time of 2018. And my cousin Alexis was also visiting. And my cousin Alexis was physically staying in my grandmother's condo, along with my grandmother's live-in caretaker, Dawn. And I was with my family at a hotel nearby. And Alexis was there when a package arrived. And it's this FedEx package from JP Morgan. And so like, what's this package? So they open up the package and it ends up being this COTU equity fund. And my grandmother was committed for, I believe, $5 million to that's based in the Cayman Islands. And it was for a number of years. And my grandmother's in her nineties. So Alexis and Don are like, nanny, this is what we call her. Like, what's this fund? And my grandmother, who is not financially sophisticated at all, and will be the first to admit that, had no idea what the fund was. So Then my cousin Alexis called me and we started getting concerned. And that's when Alexis sat down with my grandmother and had her computer because my grandmother does not have a computer and and never has had a computer, would not know how to turn on a computer, which is sort of similar to me, but (laughs) um, I, I do know how to turn on the computer most of the time. And so Alexis had her own computer and was able to get the password and it turned out. So she sits down with my grandmother and they start looking through her statements. And it turns out my cousin Evan had enrolled my grandmother in paperless statements. So the reason she wasn't receiving her statements was because they were all coming to her electronically. And to do that, you have to have an email address. Again, my grandmother's never had a computer. So of course she's never had an email address. So then it was uncovered that, there was a fictitious email address 
literally named bev.shotenstein at gmail.com that all her statements are going to, essentially a black hole because my grandmother does not have a computer and does not have an email address. So that's really when the snowball began to roll and it never stopped rolling for quite some time after that because it was obvious that there was suspicious activity and there shouldn't be an email address. And, you know, what, 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 how is she committed to this fund? And supposedly her signature's on it. And my grandmother's saying she never signed it. So we started being concerned that there was forgery, which in fact there was. And um, it, it, it escalated from there. Wow. How old was your grandmother when this started? 93. I want to back up. Why did Don reach out to you in particular to share that she was concerned about potential exploitation or fraud? Well, apparently she'd been reaching out to a number of us. Um, and actually, the irony is I had never even spoken to Don on the phone ever. I had seen her occasionally when I would come to visit, um, but we didn't. I, I, I didn't know much about her at all. Um, and we had never spoken on the phone. And she said that it was really she calls it now like a cry for help. She was getting desperate. Um, she had mentioned the jewelry had gone missing a few years before this. She had mentioned that to my father. The rest of the family knew about it. I actually didn't know about it uh, until all this. Um, she had been mentioning things to my cousin Alexis, but Alexis is younger and she was in college and she was in graduate school and she was actually in Europe. So, you know, you're, you get busy with your own lives and who wants to start investigating their own family especially when we're not even there, they were the ones that were physically with her in Florida. The rest of us were dispersed around the United States. And and for Alexis's case, she was actually in England. Um, So it was almost one of those things that you don't want, want to hear about. You don't want to be involved in, but after um, enough warning signs, there really was no choice. And I felt sucked into it. And it wasn't easy. Um, at first, if my cousins, and I say this now, but it, it, it's really the truth. If they had admitted that they had done wrong and apologized at the very beginning when it was discovered that why, why is her name on this Cayman Islands fund? She doesn't know about this and this is not her signature. Why is her jewelry gone? If they had apologized and said, you know, maybe we weren't educated. Maybe we didn't even know what we were doing, but we're sorry. We did our best. You take your money and and do what you want with it. Um, This would never have gone to where it is today. They took an extremely aggressive stance. And when other family members, including myself, Alexis, my father, the rest of the family came together and started asking these questions about why is she not receiving her statements? Why is there a fake email address? Why is all of her jewelry missing? They said they did nothing wrong. They continue to this day to say they've done nothing wrong, even though they've already been found liable of all charges. Um, And Bobby wrote a letter also, right? Bobby Bobby wrote wrote a letter letter saying he took the jewelry. Admitting that he took the jewelry. Did not apologize. Just said, I took the jewelry because I got involved with some bad people and I needed the jewelry to pay off some bad business debts. If there had just been some acceptance and um, contrition and apology, this would never have escalated. But they took a very aggressive stance. And then my grandmother was harassed. 
and she was physically harassed um, in which my my cousin Evan's father came up and physically forced her to write a retraction letter to JP Morgan saying, I got it all wrong. Evan didn't do anything. Everything's fine. And then my 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 grandmother's caretaker, Don, had to drive her to the hospital because she was in so much pain because he ended up hurting her shoulder very bad. And she still has pain to this day. Um, so that's physical assault right there. But more, more over, there was so much psychological and mental abuse and harassment. Uh, on multiple occasions, my cousins were secretly videotaping my grandmother and in her own condo, in her home, um, and actually wanted to use that as evidence for themselves to say that she had dementia, that there was something wrong with her, that they didn't do anything wrong, but there definitely was something wrong with her. She didn't understand the charges that she was bringing upon them. That was not allowed. Um, in part, well, I think in large part, because in Florida, you are not allowed to secretly videotape someone without their knowledge or consent. But the fact that they were even doing it shows the environment that she was living in for so long and how this escalated. And frankly, she still has anger about it to this day. She may have won her case, which she did. She she won on every single count. Um, but what she went through from her own family, in particular her son and her two grandsons, Evan and Avi, um, and the fact that there's never been any acceptance or apology is why she continues to talk about it. Because deep, it's a it's a deep wound. And um, yes, yes, the court found them liable. But I think until, and I don't believe this will ever happen, but until there's uh, some acknowledgement that she was right. And that they did do wrong. Um, I'm not sure that she'll ever really stop talking about it because it's such a deep wound for her and for the whole family. Some important things were revealed in this interview with Kathy Schottenstein Paddock. One is that even when the signs were there, family were reluctant to get involved and investigate their families. They were living their lives there were generational differences. There were, um, we didn't talk about money as a family. We didn't know how much money was in question, et cetera. Uh, we didn't want to rock the boat. We didn't want to investigate family members. And all of these are important when thinking about the dynamics that families will be facing in the context of financial exploitation. And so I think the more we can listen to family stories and understand how these situations play out, the better, the more attuned we will be as professionals to understanding financial exploitation and identifying it and intervening early. All right, now back to my interview with Dr. Peter Lichtenberg. So these are, in my mind, extreme. But then there are these like subtleties that I see happening where I wonder, and and I don't think we'll have clear answers about these cases that sort of skirt the line of exploitation or not, or it's like this ambiguous place where, well, there's a caregiver and, and a strong family history and relationship and they're pretty enmeshed maybe. And maybe the the person is taking a little more than they would, or maybe the older adult is giving to a grandchild when, you know, because of that sort of desire to contribute, but then the, the caregiver says, well, no, we really can't afford that. We need to keep your money for this other caregiving need. But right. then the older adult wants to give and give and give in a, 
in a direction that might not be, you know, helpful to the older adult. Those cases are always a little bit harder for me as a clinician where I think, gosh, you know, some of this, is this just a bad decision and we're entitled to making bad decisions from time to time? Or is this like, we need to help us? What would you say in these sort of ambiguous cases? Oh, thanks for bringing this up. It's a great, great and important topic. And, and one, of the, one of the things that we, we've created some training on is how do you manage somebody else's money? And I think it's important to follow those kinds of rules. It, it, and what happens inside of following those rules can be quite variable. But uh, you talked about enmeshment. You really can't commingle funds. I mean, this is really important. You really have to document expenditures uh, that have come out of uh, the older person's accounts. You really have to think of it like if I had to go to court and show the judge, you know, what did I do um, to care for mom or dad? Uh, this is what I spent on. And then um, when it comes to these kinds of gifts, what's allowable? Well, you got to kind of be probably a little bit upfront with others in your family about it. Mom wants to do this. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Is there, you know, should we sit down with her? Should we do some family mediation about this? What should we do? But um, secrecy is, is really what gets people into trouble. And uh, also uh, not having some clear kind of boundaries between the finances and not keeping a chart of accounts on, on what they do. And that's where, you know, my brothers would say, Oh my gosh, you know, Pete's just really going around and exploiting dad. You know, even though my dad wanted to, you know, send my daughter to a camp or something. And of course that could be very genuine, you know, and, and my dad might've had the money to do that. So I have to be upfront about that in some ways. Right. Right. You're managing a system when you're a caregiver. You're not just managing the older person. And it is everybody's business because it they will become interested parties. <laughs> so you might as well do that up front. Oof. You know, as you were saying that, I was just thinking uh, the older adult in that scenario must feel like a gem getting chiseled away at. I mean, just this like chisel, chisel, chisel. All these people want a piece of me talking about me as if I'm not here. I mean, this is where I think it really does help to have some guidance and guidelines. And I know you all offer some of that. And I, I want to talk about that in a minute, but uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking about the older adult in this scenario. Yes, I 100% agree the caregiver is managing a system and contain and and trying to offer some containment to that. And has I'm going to say her because the majority of caregivers are women um and has her own interest in that system and role in that system too. Oof. And and so how do you I know that autonomy is of paramount importance to the older adult. And so how do you maintain that in the midst of diminished capacity? That's why we actually created our scale. It was to promote autonomy where possible. And and it really has been the case that we've used our decision-making scale to show intact abilities, even in the light of cognitive decline or dementia. For example, uh, in one case, a woman wanted to give her house to her son and his family. 
Uh, a, she wanted to, she was in assisted living. She wanted to be able to go visit and, and be in her room. Uh, B, her other son had done incredibly well in life. And, and this son had spent so much time caring for her and sacrificed some things. And she just felt it was fair. And, and I thought that was perfectly appropriate. And she was able to express her choice, express an understanding and an appreciation of it. And so um, that is crucial. The older person is at the center. And when they have, even if they have some diminished abilities in other realms, they still may have this intact decision-making. But the thing is, you know, because of the caregiving situation, the adult child has to understand they're now in a dual role. They're a child, they're a caregiver. They're, you know, those are, that's a dual role. And that's why I say they have to manage the system because it's all going to come back to them eventually. And so the best thing for them to do would be to say to their older parent, I'd like, I'd like you to talk to, you know, brothers and sisters about your plans and why you want to do this. That's the best thing. It's the secrecy that gets people into trouble and really not the communication. Peter, can you talk about the survey? Are you talking, I know on your site, you have a few different surveys. There's, there's one around financial vulnerability for the older adult. And then there are different um, surveys and resources for professionals. Which survey were you talking about just then? So just then I was talking about our financial decision-making scale for professionals. So we created these three scales. That's where we started. And then we asked the question, Regina, out of our long scale, it's like 60 some items, not even on our website. We just use it for research. We said, how much does context matter? Like take away these intellectual cognitive things. How much just does vulnerability generally matter. And we found, oh my goodness, financial vulnerability um, predicted kind of group membership, those who we had confirmed exploitation cases, those that weren't, uh, over 80% accuracy. And these 17 items held together as a scale, and they cover things like financial awareness like strain and expenditures versus income and confidence. They also cover things like psychological vulnerability. How often do you wish you had someone to talk to about your finances, that loneliness around finances or anxiety or depression or or memory loss interfering with your finances? And the third factor that kind of touched in on the scale is relationship strain as a relationship with a family member becomes strained as you've gotten older due to finances. And, you know, do you think someone wants to take your money? You know, how, are you worried about your financial freedom? These, this survey is self-report. And we said, you know what? We cross-validated it. My doctoral student will present that next week. And we said, we need to get this, out there for people to use. So we created an older adult page on our website. And this survey, 17 items, will give you a risk score. And this risk score corresponds to kind of, are you at average risk or high risk or low risk 
for exploitation. And why? Because these factors really do tend to create that susceptibility, even in cognitively intact individuals. So, and this is called the financial vulnerability scale on for older adults on your website. And it's financial vulnerability service. It's free. All of our instruments are professionals have accounts on our websites. They they get our online training and certification. Can use our um, assessment tools. Put in the score. I put in the answers, and we'll provide the scoring and next steps and resources. Same that we wanted to create this for older adults themselves, so they could just create they're on they're anonymous they don't even need to create an account and they just fill out the scale and they can print it off and it and it gives them some ideas of next steps and also some resources and what's been amazing is the response to it tell me we've been up five months i think we have over a thousand surveys that have been filled out wow and and um, the survey is free and then they get resources and information. And those are all, you know, we're talking about risk and vulnerability. So just want to reassure people, the resources that you send the older adult to are credible, legitimate. Tell us about that. So we know to yeah, trust, so them we're very, trust them. Very careful. No for-profit resources at all. No, We send them to uh, kind of the AARP fraud page, the federal trade commission, uh, certain uh, COVID scam kind of uh, things. So it's all educational material. What can you do to protect yourself? What should you be looking out for? You know, fraud and scams change all the time. And we try to keep up a little bit with it. Not, not can't keep up with all of it, but we try to keep up a little bit. So those kinds of resources are more f- better education mm-hmm. about what's going on out there. Next steps, what we suggest sometimes is, you know, maybe somebody is, um, showing some mental health problems. Hey, go get an evaluation for that. Uh, if they're feeling like I'm really desperate to talk to somebody about finances, they can talk with us, our safe program. We have a, you know, a a social worker who's a economic advocate, financial coach. What does safe stand for? Successful aging through financial empowerment. And, uh, this particular program is based on evidence-based program that, that that was a national program that started at the University of Maryland. But the group that we patterned ourselves after, and we went and got trained by them and mentored by them, was a group called Lifespan uh, in Rochester, New York. And it's it really is uh, the part that we took is the scam and identity theft um, for older adults who've been victims of that, or community education, of course. But talking about the victims, we'll give them one-on-one services to restore their credit, to make sure they report to the proper people, including the police. And uh, we'll do what we can to retrieve or save them money, which we, uh, which we often find we can. So let me give you an example. One guy, I mean, <laughs> this is a great story. He was in his mid-70s, and he got a, a report. A, kind of a notice from a collection agency that he owed $35,000. He had no idea what what's going on. And he called the safe program because he didn't know how to access his credit report and find out. Well, it turns out he was a victim of identity theft. Somebody charged their student loans to his, him. He'd never gone to college, but he was, you know, he's very depressed, very anxious. Of course, you know, terrifying. He also 
couldn't figure his way through this. He wasn't, he was, he, he didn't have dementia, but he had some cognitive changes normal with aging that are, were just impeding him. So Latoya got the whole thing, uh, disputed it, and they accepted the dispute. It went away, happily went on with his life, got married this past fall. Oh my gosh, congratulations. Yeah, so that was a great example. But uh, interestingly, um, you know, we were talking about when's it, when is it fraud? When is it just confusion? And we see some pretty, pretty rough uh, financial practices, car loans, mortgages, those kinds of things. Car loans especially are not as scrutinized legally. And so um, we just had a case that was uh, uh, a, a car loan that really uh, the loan was to repair the car. The car never got repaired, but the loan kept ballooning. And um, Latoya really helped to bring that down to size. So. Latoya is the social worker that's connected to the SAFE program. She is. Connected to your department at Wayne State. Yes. She's at our Institute of Gerontology. She and I are joined at the hip on this. And we started very small and we keep expanding the program. On our website, we also have trainings for caregivers, what we call family and friends. And it's about how to detect dementia, how to manage somebody else's money, how do you look through their financial accounts to detect scams or frauds, Whoa. and how to have difficult conversations. Wow. I, I mean, you all are just the gift that keeps on giving without taking anything away. <laughs> you, know, you know, we've been very blessed. We've gotten a lot of uh, grant support and, and donor support to offer these this information at no charge. I hate and, to say free because nothing's free, right. but it's at no charge to anybody that uses it because of uh, the different federal, foundation, state, and local uh, places that we've been able to get funding. Wow. Now, the SAFE program that you're talking about, which is around r fraud and scamming, at, to, and to work with LaToya, it sounds like she's uh, masterful at these these issues or resolving these issues. Um, does the person have to be in Michigan to participate in the SAFE program? No. And one of the things about the pandemic, we went virtual <laughs> and uh, we found out, hey, this was a great idea. We can help so many more people, even in Michigan. So we were first for just five counties because you don't know, can't get around that. And now we've been helping people in the Upper Peninsula in Michigan. We've been working with the prosecutor's office to help this one woman recover about $20,000. Wow. And um, now nationally, too. And uh, so you go on our website on the older adult page, you click on the safe page, and then you can fill out a form and we'll get back in touch with you. But one of the things about conversation, and, and I work on some of the, uh, I, I do a lot of the difficult conversation coaching and so forth. So we just had somebody, a woman uh, in Wyoming and her mother in California. And, you know, her mother has these, hasn't paid her taxes in years and has lots of other kinds of um, uh, financial expenses and has been resistant and just been coaching the daughter a little bit on how to, how to talk with her mother. And then uh, when she went to visit her mother, we had a Zoom call and her mother was much more open to saying, you know, I've been in denial, but I, it's time to come out of it. And so 
I try to use a lot of motivational interviewing kinds of techniques, Regina. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and motive, at the core of that, of course, is that people are ambivalent about a decision or, or topic. And so you, you got to side with both sides of it. You have to be very, very compassionate and really understanding of the older adult's feelings, the, the identity that's at stake, and uh, how they're thinking through this issue. And then you could probe, you can ask some questions, you know, that kind of are general and, and start to get people to think about, uh, you know, maybe doing something different. Mm-hmm. But so many adult children, um, they feel so responsible to protect their, their parents. They get very frightened. And we've talked about autonomy, and sometimes they just step right on it. And I'll tell you what. Those older parents lock the door, they change the locks, they throw the key away, they, <laughs> throw, the, they throw their son's address away. Uh, they, they're very hurt, they're very angry, and they feel very persecuted. So you have to be very careful. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, you mentioned conversations. So, and this important role of if you and your uh, parent, uh, older adult, loved one are struggling to engage in these conversations, that it can help at times to have um, somebody to help coach the conversation along. Now, it sounds like you all offer that in your program. Is that right? Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, We offer services for caregivers uh, that are around finances. This could be even the caregiver's own budgeting for their own finances. We recognize that this could be very uh, difficult. Um, Wait, let me stop you there. Say more about that because they want to (laughs) know. Yeah. Well, caregivers are stressed financially. And as you were pointing out, um, sometimes, you know, some, a lot of their assets are going into providing this care and, uh, or they're just so stretched with the sandwich generation kind of thing that they haven't really been budgeting their money and they're finding that they're losing funds and they didn't realize that excessive spending. So we'll, we'll help them with just their own budgeting. Wow. Yeah. As well as uh, anything to do with their, uh, their parents' uh, finances or older relatives' finances as well. Or if it's a, you know, it doesn't have to be family, friends taking care of an older relative and and we'll provide those services too. You know what I love so much about what you all are offering back to your um, statement about this is a system that you're caring for. And you all have really set up a program that is caring for the system. You're and thinking about all parties in the system, the caregiver, we don't want the caregiver to be alienated and depleted. We want the caregiver to be empowered. We don't want the older adult to be um, stamp, you know, stampeded on and their, and their dignity and their autonomy to be violated. We want that to be upheld. And it could be so hard for families to, and when you're in the middle of it to try to tease it all apart and then who to trust to help you with that, if there's already secrecy around money. And so a program like yours, which is really, you know, grounded in, in evidence, right? You do a lot of research on this. You're also um, a, a psychologist that has long time experience in capacity evaluations and difficult family conversations around capacity, capacity having to do with changes in autonomy, changes in abilities to make decisions about your, um, your finances and the importance of these conversations on the front end. So as 
your capacity might change over time, you have some resources in place to, um, to honor your wishes down the road. I think these resources are so valuable, what you're offering, because families are like, well, where do we even go for this information? And who do we even trust? And we're worried about fraud. Are you going to fraud? You know, are you going to exploit us if we come and talk to you about this? And, and that you're a program that's um, safe, and not just your safe program, but you're yeah. a secure program that will, right. you know, is, is founded on the bedrock of ethics and integrity and just offering such an important service. Thank you so much, Regina. You know, I, I found that uh, caregiving was so siloed from elder abuse and let's say financial exploitation part of elder abuse um, because they're just so they're in different systems. And yet, uh, as much help as there is for caregiving, it's, a lot of it is about, you know, how do you physically care for somebody? How do you care for your own mental health needs as well as the older person's? But there wasn't much for finances. And so that's where we thought that we had the opportunity to offer. Now, on the elder abuse site, <clears throat> you know, a lot of we train a lot of adult protective service workers. Many of them came from child protective services or domestic violence. They have no idea about dementia memory loss like, uh, and um, kind of how to have these kinds of conversation with the older person too. And so we're just trying to blend that. And we thought, you know, as we do that, we need to have a public face to this too for families and, and for older, older adults themselves. So thank you. We, we appreciate it. Oh my gosh. Well, I appreciate all that you are doing. It really is one of the most challenging situations I help families with. And I, um, you know, I'm not a financial advisor or a financial planner. I'm good at having, helping families have difficult conversations, but to have all the resources, I looked at some of the resources on your, for professionals and for families. I mean, the, the resources that you have that are even outside of your programs resources are magnificent and so helpful and credible. So thank you for all that you're doing. Okay. So tell us about your website, olderadultnestegg.com. Olderadultnestegg.com. Also, I realize I have the domain name for .org and .something else that everybody always asks me, do I have to pay for this because it's .com? I just thought that'd be easier for people to remember. Nobody has to pay for this. They go on our website. If you're a professional, if you're, it could be a financial planner, could be a psychologist, could be a uh, a medical provider, an elder law attorney, uh, all of those folks, physical occupational therapists, they all have accounts on our website. You click on a sign up and you create your own account. Then you can get trained on our, our scales and certified, and then you can go ahead and use them. And, and uh, once, once you're trained and certified, you can either download it as a PDF or use it online. On the older adult page, uh, there's resources, there's the SAFE program, which describes what it is, and there's the Financial Vulnerability Survey. And on the Family and Friends page, there's those four trainings plus the Family and Friends Questionnaire. What that is, is a self-report, 14 items to give the caregiver a sense of how concerned from their own perspective they are about their loved, older loved ones uh, financial abilities, both decision-making and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And then they can even take that report to the doctors the next time they go, uh, if they're you know worried about an older person, share that with, with the doctor or to an attorney or however. 
So those are the three uh, sets of resources that we have. And uh, for each, there are there is a resource page, professional resources, resources for families, resources for older adults. And it'll take you to all kinds of different websites, none of which, none of which are selling any kind of service at all, none of which have in their, um, I mean, even if they were just giving information, their companies aren't selling yeah. a, a service that's you know directly related. And so that, that makes it a little bit easier for us. Um, the AARP, Federal Trade Commission, uh, Elder Justice website, which is which is really outstanding. And um, uh, different reports, the, the Baker Fraud Report, we, we take some of the resources that they share on a weekly basis and post them. So we've kept updated on what the latest COVID scams are and so forth. Wow. Well, Peter, thank you so much for all you're doing to, to maintain the integrity of an older adult's well-being. So there's the physical health, mental health, and financial health of a family. And um, and I really, you know, thank you for what you're doing. It's so essential. And thanks to LaToya. Yeah, even though she's not here, I feel like she's here in spirit. Well, thank you so much for all that you do for older adults and their families and professionals. I, I can't wait to share this information with the professional groups I'm involved with. So thank you. Such a pleasure to be with you, Regina. Thank you for having me. And so anybody who's interested in these resources can go to olderadultnestegg.com. And all of the resources are free. You only need to start an account if you're a professional. And um, these other surveys that Peter was mentioning are free and easy to use. I tried, I, I started to use one myself just to see how it worked. So thank you. My pleasure. I hope you found some useful insights in this episode with Dr. Peter Lichtenberg. I also want to remind you to check out the show notes page, which is linked to wherever you're listening to this podcast. The resources will help you help family members, older adults, professionals, everyone. So check it out. All right. That's all for today. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does make a difference. Bye for now. That's all for today. Just a reminder, if you're a licensed mental health provider looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy but I got something for you in my free 10 minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss. You'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.